there was something that she knew she couldn't do, but that she wanted to do. And so she decided to do it anyway. And so she set out. And she didn't get there all in one day. It was in chunks. There's this old saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. Of course, I always respond, why would you want to eat an elephant? Or that a journey of a thousand miles begins with what, church? A single step, right? And so there was something that she was determined to learn to do and to accomplish. And so now she started training for yet an actual full marathon that's going to be like start to finish 26.2 at one time. On purpose, nobody chasing you, all that stuff, right? Yeah. And if all goes well, I'm going to be there at the finish line because those half marathons, I, I, you know, once she's got her everything she needs and I take her, her packet of stuff and I go back to the car and I lean the seat back and I set my alarm for when I can wake up and, and then I go and I wait for, get there about a half hour before she finishes and, uh, and so I'm there to cheer her on and be her cheerleader when she, when she finishes. And I hope to be able to do that when she finishes 26.2 miles. And I'm expecting her not to be able to carry on a conversation for a while after she does that. But, you see, what we're we're talking about right now is the idea of equipping ourselves. And it's not by accident that we're doing this here at the beginning of the year, the first month of the year, we're discussing this idea of we as children of God being equipped. That we are equipped to do things. As we mentioned last week, Ephesians 2.10, works that God planned in advance for us to do. And we looked at the idea that we all have been given gifts by God. And last week, we focused on the idea of giving credit to God for the gifts that He's given us. That we start by giving glory to the giver of life and all things that are good. And then today, I want us to look, start to look a little bit more specifically about those gifts. And so we find ourselves in Romans chapter 12, and Paul writes, beginning in verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. 
And so that is not an exhaustive list there in Romans 12. But Paul does cite several different examples of how one person might be able to preach, one person might be able to teach, one person might be blessed financially to the point that they can help out to a greater degree than some others can. And so that there may be some who just have that, they're a modern day Barnabas. They have that wonderful gift of encouragement. I don't know that there's any of us that haven't been, at least I hope there's none of us, that have uh, ever failed to be on the receiving end of someone's compliment. That someone says something that just kind of makes your day. I've even had people say, man, you just made my month. You know that they they, they just on the receiving end of a compliment that's just so so valuable to them that they say wow and I know I have been on the receiving end of that kind of encouragement when people say hey I've noticed you doing this and I think that's great and you know or people just for whatever reason say thank you and if you're like me sometimes you you're, you're like what in the world are they thanking me for. You know, that was nothing. That, that took hardly any time at all. But, but then we realized that it meant something to them. And so, if it is encouraging, then encourage. If it is leading, then do it diligently, he tells us. And if it is, you know, if, if it is in giving mercy, then be someone who is just known as that loving, forgiving spirit among the body of believers. But church, let's let's not overlook how he begins that section because he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And of course, I I think it's wonderful. I think, Bill, it was spirit-led once again because Bill's meditation on the table was about, you know, that we don't brag, that we, if we want to boast, we boast in the Lord. And so this idea, I mean, that, that statement really sums it up right there. It grabs our attention. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't get too big for your britches, is the old saying I used to hear when I was a kid growing up. And I remember my dad one time because I got a little big for my britches. And my dad just reminded me, here I was in high school thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm a man. And Dad just looked me in the eye and said, you're not too big for me to rip. Now, yeah, it was my, my uh, whatever I had, whatever had come, I don't even remember what I had said or what kind of attitude I was pulling at the time. But yeah, uh, I just remember that whatever I was doing, I was on the receiving end of Dad reminding me, I'm the adult here. You're the adolescent, and you're not so big yet that I can't take you down a notch if I need to. And so with Dad, you know, you didn't have to wait for him to follow through on the action. You know, his reminding you that he could do it was, was enough, okay? And some of you had fathers like that, that they would look you in the eye and say, be careful, kiddo. And so sometimes in our lives we think of ourselves a bit more highly than we ought. 
And so Paul is trying to set the stage here and saying, you've all got different gifts, and all those gifts are necessary. I touched on that some last week. But we've got people in this congregation that can fix things and move things and do stuff that I don't have the easy capability of doing. And I'm grateful for that. We have people that can teach classes that I don't feel qualified or necessarily gifted to teach. But what Paul is saying is just because one person has one gift and one person has another, that there is no hierarchy of gifts. The preacher is no better than the person who cleans up after the potluck. That the, the, the elder is no better, who leads diligently, is no better than the person who takes out the trash. That all of these things are necessary. And we're going to look in, in 1 Corinthians next Sunday and really look at the idea of, of the different parts of the body. But the reality is, gifts are designed to be used in community. That what makes your gift work is the fact that somebody else has that same gift and can do it with you. Or even better, that somebody else has a different gift and they're going to tackle a different thing. And so when we put it all together, it is a beautiful thing known as the faith community, the body of Christ, the congregation, whatever you want to call it. But it's everyone using their gifts to glorify God and using them together that makes all of this work. And so I want to, um, I want us to look at um, John 13 in just a moment. But I want to read a quote from a guy named William Taylor. And he says there are at least 51 uses of the word calling in the New Testament. Because that's a word I used quite a bit last week. And he says there's 51 uses at least. In, for the word calling in the New Testament. 46 of them refer to becoming a Christian. In other words, that God calls us to Him through Christ. Now, there are four examples of uh, using the term calling uh, that we are called to live a holy and peaceful life. So it's just one case, that found in 1 Corinthians 7.20, where the, the word calling is used to speak of the station for which we have been appointed. Now, the reason Taylor brings that out is simply because he's trying to say that this idea of calling, that when we look at the entirety of New Testament Scripture... It's only used one time, in other words, a very small minority, to talk about the task that we're appointed to. He's making the point that your station, your calling, uh, whatever you're called to do or carry out, it doesn't put one ahead of the other. That we can make too big an issue out of this is what I'm called to do if we're not careful. 
And so I want us to look, because Paul says not to think of ourselves too highly, more highly than we ought, and this idea that service should be done in humility. Well, no other than Jesus himself shows us what that looks like in John chapter 13. I begin with verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And so he does this, and this is a well-known episode in the life of Jesus. It's only covered in this one gospel. But nonetheless, many of us are aware of Jesus washing feet. And many of us are aware that the kind of footwear they had, you know, they didn't have socks with lace-up running shoes or something like that that they wore all day. You know, they're wearing sandals. And they're not walking on paved roads, they're walking on dusty roads. And so it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination for us to kind of put two and two together and figure out the condition of one's feet after they've spent some time outside that day. And so if you know the history, you know that it was a task when they would come into a house that was usually reserved for a slave to be the one who washes the dirty, dusty feet. And that in the Jewish community, they wouldn't even ask a Jewish slave to carry out that task. They would usually save that for a Gentile slave. And so then it's no surprise then when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter objects, doesn't he? He says, no, no Lord, don't do this. Don't wash my feet. He doesn't have to say it for everyone in the room because they know. It's like, Master, you're way too good for this. I can't let you let you wash the dirtiest part of my body. And Jesus, without hesitation or reservation, says, If you don't let me do this, we're done. You can have no part with me, is the way it's translated, typically. And so Peter then says, well then, wash all of me. And then Jesus explains, no, that's not necessary. You've had a bath. This is about washing that dirtiest part of you. And so then... When Jesus concludes in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And it is a call from Christ himself to service saying to those who were following most closely in his footsteps during his, his ministry, that if, you know, I've made an example for you, that I am not too good to do something that you all were uncomfortable with me doing. And it reminds us today, church, doesn't it, that we're called to serve and that none of us is too good for even the most menial of tasks. But let's not forget how that part opened. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had from come from God and was returning to God. And so Jesus, knowing who it was that would betray him, even takes the time to wash Judas's feet, doesn't he? And so service is not just about the tasks that we're called to do or the tasks that we see an opportunity to carry out. No. Service is also about who we're willing to serve. That we should even be willing to serve the person that we know is going to betray us. Now, Judas was going to betray Jesus. I wouldn't say that Judas hated his guts. That's a whole other conversation for another day. And Judas' betrayal of Jesus gets kind of complicated, I think. But it doesn't change the fact that even if there's that person that we know hates our guts, the person that's been saying bad things about us, whether true or untrue, that we're asked to have a heart that says, I will even wash their feet. I know that's not easy. But that's what Jesus asks. Because Jesus, when he shed his blood on the cross, church, didn't do it just for the people he liked. He did it for all humanity, didn't he? He did it for the people who would never call out his name. He did it for the people who would never acknowledge him as the Son of God. He did it for the people who who would nail him to that cross. He did it for even the most vile and despicable of sinners. The people who do heinous acts that were uncomfortable with the preacher even mentioning in the sacred assembly on Sunday mornings. And yes, he did it for all of those. And he wants us to be willing to serve if we have the opportunity, all of those.
as we begin to conclude our time together this morning, I want to read from an article that was published in the Gospel Coalition about five years ago. It says, uh, too often we over-spiritualize calling and make it about self-expression instead of faithfulness to God and service to others. We search for the perfect job, just what we're called to do, and use calling as a trump card to replace perseverance, risk, and qualification. Yet there is no job charming. I love how she uses that term. There is no job charming. Most of us could do any number of things. We simply must make a vocational choice using the classic disciplines of prayer, community, and scripture reading. That we should work deeply at it and be faithful in it. As Paul summarizes in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work hard as for the Lord and not for men. Let's not then overanalyze or over-spiritualize calling in our lives. Our primary calling is to know Jesus Christ. That's his resounding voice in his word. Yes, in addition to his word, he has given us spiritual gifts and talents, as well as prayer and community, and called us to different stations. But there's no perfect job, and even if we love our work, we often only experience that in retrospect after years of deep labor, working hard as unto the Lord. And so it is kind of a sobering take on spiritual gifts, and I appreciate it. Like the example of my wife who decided I want to do that and set out by doing it not because it came natural to her, but because she knew that there would be sort of an emotional reward and a physical reward for being able to carry out the task of running distances. And so we too should not just sit and wait for there to be some beam of light that comes down from heaven and that we're going to hear the angel chorus and it's going to say this, this is your gift. No, that it's about seeing an opportunity. Maybe it's about someone tapping us on the shoulder and saying, I think that you're capable of doing this. And then you being willing, there's the word right there, church, willing, to say, you know what, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a try. Not everything I have tried in service to God's kingdom has worked. I go back to my time as a teenager, a young adult. There are things that I tried that I said, that is not for me. But I didn't know until I made an attempt. It was after years of doing different things and working that I figured out this, this is my appointed station. This is, these are the things that I'm best at. These, these, this is where I can most be a benefit to God's kingdom. I didn't start doing this until I was in my 40s. 
And so I had plenty of time as a child of God being part of the flock and knowing what it was like to serve for among the church pews. So I say that not being someone who's only done this. Please understand. And so we are given opportunities to serve. And just as Jesus was willing to do the most menial, menial of tasks and to perform it to perform it even for those that would betray him, then we're asked to do the same. To love and serve in the name of Jesus, not just for some, but to all that we can possibly love and serve. And that God equips us in ways that we don't realize. But there's nothing magical about it. That it is up to us to take that step forward and be willing to try something and to work at it. And church family, we need everyone within the body. We don't, we're not big enough to have consumers of religion here. We need everybody in the body of Christ, everybody in the family, in the congregation, to be doing their part to love and serve in some way. It is what we are all asked to do in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're with us today and you have not yet taken advantage of the greatest gift known to mankind, that Jesus Christ, as we have already celebrated this morning when we took communion together, laid down His life for all of humanity. That Jesus Christ shed His blood so that we could have eternal salvation. Then we give you the opportunity to come forward to say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to begin walking with Him and loving and serving in His name. But we also offer the invitation for anyone who is here and needs the prayers of this body that you've got something weighing on you that you just need relief from then we will help lift that burden from you and pray with you about that, whatever it is. Let's stand together and sing.